Welcome to the Health Humanities Podcast. Our mission is to facilitate interdisciplinary thinking and creative work related to illness, caregiving, and medicine. I'm Elizabeth Coletti, the Editor-in-Chief of the Health Humanities Journal of UNC Chapel Hill, and this episode we'll hear from Katie Rigitko, who's majoring in sociology with minors in medical anthropology and health and society. We'll start with hearing them read their personal narrative, Patient Perpetrator. We hope you enjoy. Patient Perpetrator. The last time I rode in an ambulance rushing to the hospital, a part of me jumped for joy. This time it wasn't my fault, I thought. People will show their care before judgment for once. There's an EKG in front of my television set. My dog was back with my roommate. Once again, I didn't know if that gentle goodbye would be my last to her. But if I died, I remembered in the back of my mind, at least it wasn't my fault this time. Tiny metal box rushing down the road to the hospital. Text flooding my inbox. Spray the nitro under the tongue. Chew this aspirin. You're kind of young for this. The physical symptoms were almost identical to the times before, but this time without a paired electrolyte imbalance or laxative overdose or extended stretch without intake. Heart racing, chest tightening, pain, and everything else blurred out. I couldn't see or breathe, but a part of my dying heart swelled as I thought again, this wasn't my fault for once. When you present to the hospital after taking boxes of laxatives, you're perceived to be suicidal from the start. Scream until the nurses stare that this is what you did to try to survive, but no matter what, in the flowchart of biomedicine, pill overdose equals suicide attempt. Cue elopement risk measures, no phones, items, or visitors allowed. Cue patient sitter, multiple sets of eyes on your every breath. Cue drug tests, you might have lied about not taking anything else. Cue involuntary 72-hour psychiatric hold, at least. When you enter a hospital after taking boxes of laxatives, you're a waste of resources. For there are people who need bags of fluids and electrolytes, care of doctors and nurses, EKGs and vitals all night who didn't choose this fate. People who were scared and surprised when this happened. When you enter a hospital after taking boxes of laxatives, you are an oddity. Nurses cannot wrap their heads around it. Doctors' eyes widen when they read the chart. Wait until they see how long they're kind of tried to help. On paper, you are incorrigible. In person, you are exhausting. No one is more tired than you. Having an eating disorder is having to explain your why in an emergency. Why does a stroke victim go into hypertensive crisis? After six years, I don't know why I take laxatives. I think a random spike in blood pressure is as close of a metaphor as anything I've come up with so far. When someone's blood pressure spikes unexpectedly while watching television, they reach for a beta blocker. When I sit on the couch and the number of eating disordered thoughts skyrocket off the charts in my brain, I reach for laxatives and push away food. I am holding this illness and its blame at the same time. I'm holding this guilt and the concern of others on these tired shoulders. How can I heal while assuring everyone I'm okay? I'm not. I'm searching for a breath to feel scared and angry and sad, but this isn't about me anymore. Illness is a group effort and I've been elected the leader without my consent. This is waiting until rock bottom to reach out for help 
or not sleeping until your labs come back, or opting to die on your bathroom floor rather than step foot in a hospital for fear of incarceration in, in, in a psychiatric facility at the drop of a danger to oneself label. It's finding yourself imprisoned with no autonomy as an adult, all because you aren't very good at eating. Society handed me these behaviors on a silver platter and didn't mention that the dining table was behind two locked doors and that I'd have to show my empty plate to the nurse before leaving. Healing shouldn't be this hard. You cannot incarcerate the body without incarcerating the mind. I visit a friend in the hospital and can't walk to her room without looking over my shoulder for my police escort. I've embraced the Fifth Amendment in my medical interactions knowing that incriminating myself is more harmful than telling this illness is truth. I can't tell a friend about urges without waiting for red and blue lights outside my window and a wellness check. Medicalized and then criminalized, I shouldn't have to recover from my recovery. When I went to the hospital most recently, a part of me jumped for joy. Because when you have a blameless illness, you deserve care. You don't have to fear that what is on the back of the next doctor's clipboard are the papers that will send you to the ne next bed available across the state, handcuffed on a two-hour ride in the back of a police car. When you have a blameless illness, you get fundraisers and flowers and prayers and service and PSAs. People check in. They buy you meals and make sure you're going to your appointments. A patient, 20, presents to the ER with chest pain, numbness, dizziness, abnormal EKG, and tachycardia. One question decides everything that happens next. Are they to blame? You can read Patient Perpetrator on our website. Katie, thanks so much for joining me to talk about it. You're also our first returning guest on this Health Humanities podcast, so I'm glad it was a good enough experience last time for you to want to come back. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me again. So I want to know, what was your writing process like for this personal narrative, specifically with a lot of the great metaphors that are woven throughout the piece? You have like, illness is a group effort, and I've been elected the leader without my consent. And also that description of the silver platter that you need to clear, all of those were really striking to me. And I was wondering how you approached bringing all of those into one piece. Yeah, I feel like this piece really came uh, naturally to me just like one night out of nowhere. But it was the culmination of just a lot of experiences that had happened to me both uh, in being like hospitalized for psychiatric reasons throughout the years and also more recently, like in the last year, experiencing these like medical hospitalizations that I hadn't really experienced before, but I realized were very different in their interactions. Yeah, what I really love about it is that it brings up something that someone who doesn't have a history of hospitalizations wouldn't necessarily think about. And I think what this piece is really grappling with is that treatment of mental illness itself being kind of antagonistic, like you say, medicalized and then criminalized. I know you've done research on carceral structures and eating disorder treatment, which I do want to get to. But first, I was curious how directly that line has fit your personal experience in recovery. Yeah, I think it's been a very uh, like prevalent thing in my life. And there's a couple of experiences that I would deem like very formational in my life um, mm -hmm. and going like forward that had to do with hospitalizations uh, in the past. And like 
specifically these acute psychiatric hospitalizations that weren't necessarily eating disorder treatment. And I was in there either because of an eating disorder or not. And just how those experiences kind of play out and how the rights of the patient play out in those experiences. I know that both times for me when I was in like acute psychiatric hospitalization were kind of involuntary on my part, but one only one of them was labeled as like 5150 involuntary commitment when I was an adult like a couple years ago. I just remember the experiences there and just kind of being thrown to whatever hospital bed that there is in the state, which like at the time was two hours away and being like newly 18 and my parents not knowing where I was, even though I was still dependent on them because of different HIPAA rules and them ending up having to come drive two hours away. But you know, at that point, once papers have been signed, you can't really do anything for a few days. So that was just a very prevalent time. And then also my experiences of what happened while I was in there and like the people that I was with and the medications that, you know, we were all on and the experiences that you had or didn't have with providers. Were you able to find some sort of solidarity with the other patients? Yeah, I think definitely, you know, every time that I'm in there or like in a place like that with other people with mental illness that are going through a similar process, there is this solidarity that you find, which you know, also was very different when I was in adolescent hospitalizations versus adult hospitalizations. You know, in adolescent, at least at the place I was at, there was kind of a tendency for everybody in there to be mostly like teenagers that were struggling with like suicidal ideation or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then also you had a lot of people that were in there because the foster care system failed them and there's not a home for them to go to on the outside. And then In adult hospitalizations, it's a lot more mixed. A lot of what you see is people that are deemed to be deviant. A lot of them are homeless, especially because the place that I was at was like a state psychiatric facility. A lot of people that were like considered to be violent or not even violent, just like disruptive to the social norm were in there. And then, you know, you also had some people that were around my age, but it was just very different. So, and also it was, they were a lot more aggressive in their treatment approaches with adult patients rather than adolescents. We were all pretty much put on like sedative drugs, essentially to make people like not remember what happens there. It was less of a time of like solidarity and more of the time of all of us just kind of uh, trying to survive the moment. Well, I very much admire you being willing to talk about it and being willing to write about it and continue to think about these times in your life. And it is in the title, The Patient as the Perpetrator. And I think that frustration really comes through of the undeserved blame inherent in that. For the listener, could you give a summary of what you're researching and also how you got involved with it? Yeah, so um, right now I am researching basically how eating disorder treatment approaches changed with the rise of mass incarceration to include um, more carceral concepts and theories. So, you know, you see this kind of in a tangible way with the like housing of patients in either residential or uh, inpatient type treatments and, you know, this kind of traditional taking them away from society, reforming them and putting them back. But my research also is kind of about going 
deeper in that and seeing how that kind of tangible structure bleeds into outpatient interactions and language and things that are in the biomedical chart um, and like what goes to insurance and how all of that can be looked at through criminological lenses. Basically how we see and reinforce the thought that, you know, eating disorders are deviant and like manipulative. It just all feels like it's profiles of people that are left behind by various systems and people that are blamed much more quickly. So it seems like a really important direction of research. And what do you hope is the outcome of both your research and also your outreach through sharing your story and work like what you've published with the journal? Hopefully in the long run, you know, my dream would to be to see a structural change in the way that we like provide treatment for eating disorders. I think when you look more into, and also I think, you know, myself, when you experience this eating disorder treatment kind of pathway that they have from, you know, this hospital-based care to residential to uh, like less structured care and then on to outpatient it's kind of interesting how a lot of the treatment structures that we have mirror the same things that you know they're trying to combat so you know some of the things that we kind of label eating disorder patients as being are you know overly controlling and having a tendency to want to track everything and you know when you take it into these structures and these treatment centers the patients are all being basically controlled to do what the providers or insurance make, wants them to do. They're being countlessly tracked, all of these different labs and weights and numbers, um, and it's all information that they don't have access to. Um, you know, we tell them to find their own autonomy and like to find their own life outside of an eating disorder, but at the same time, you know, we withhold information from them um, and stuff like that. So. I would really like to see a change in eating disorder treatment to move beyond this biomedical space because a lot of it is, you know, how does insurance pay for it? And you have to have these numbers and these diagnostic codes and these specific uses of time because if you don't, insurance doesn't pay for it. So I think it would be interesting to see a change in the whole healthcare system, basically, in order to give patients, you know, not just eating disorder patients, but all patients, you know, both in mental health and beyond more autonomy with how they choose to be treated and things that work well for them and not just things that can be coded and measured. Are there any professors or advisors that you've worked with? I've kind of made my way around the medanth and sociology <laughs> department. One of the people that has been like most helpful for me actually has been Dr. Duxbury in the sociology department who actually teaches sociology of crime and delinquency. But a lot of what my research is on is, you know, focused around labeling theory, which is a sociological theory uh, of crime and yeah. deviance. And it's basically about how people are in deviant acts are labeled by structural systems. And when they get these labels, they're more likely to kind of embody them and embody the traits. The way that I'm looking at that is, you know, when we diagnose a patient with um, something and we, you know, have all of these treatment structures um, that are set in place to combat it, you know, how 
does that subconsciously lead people to like embody those behaviors more? So that's theory of crime that had actually proved to be really helpful for me. In the previous episode I mentioned you were on, you read your poem, Learning to Forget, which is also about living with an eating disorder, specifically about growing up with an eating disorder. Why do you keep coming back in your writing to different elements of that? And why do you approach it from different angles? Over time, um, my eating disorder and the way that I've experienced it has changed a lot. And um, especially when I look at it now, and especially when I've spent so long in this sort of community of people with eating disorders or in recovery from eating disorders, I look at my story too and the things that are popular in the media around it. And there is so much that has been covered but it seems like it's been the same thing kind of over and over again. So I think that taking it and um, kind of approaching it from a new angle and asking the questions that people, you know, haven't asked or, or, you know, have been hesitant or afraid to ask or just haven't asked because they don't expect anything to ever change. That's really something that I want to do now just because... I really believe that there is change that's possible. And I think that, you know, people deserve more than what they're getting. So, and also I think it's something that I keep coming back to because it's something that I know. Um, and mm -hmm. I've, you know, lived it for a long time. And I also want to encourage other people to kind of break beyond this stereotypical eating disorder story that we see where it needs to be all... Um, wrapped up neatly with a bow on the end. And so I kind of write the things that I want to see more of in hopes that other people will write more too. Also for Patient Perpetrator, you went more in the direction of prose. There's some brief lines that read almost as separate stanzas, and you can definitely see the poetry influence. But why the shift in genre for this piece? When I see things kind of organized in my life, some of them feel more like creative essays, some of them feel more memoirs, and some of them feel more like poetry, and it's kind of how I perceive things and, you know, how memory plays a role into things, but as well, like, how much I have to say on a topic yeah. and the ways that organization can impact uh, what I want to say, um, I think is really important. So I know that, you know, for this piece, there was more of an experience of like going to the ER that I wanted to capture. I have always wanted to fit writing into like boxes. And when I uh, realized that, um, you know, I didn't have to write just poetry or like I didn't have to write like just a memoir that's like in all paragraphs and everything, I think that kind of changed my life and it took a little long to get there. Yeah, and I think that kind of came too when I started writing for myself more instead of like for classes and things. I think I'm always kind of stuck in poetry just because it sounds better in my head. Um, so now whenever I try to do, I'm in a life writing class right now, you know, where we're doing like memoir and autoethnography and I think poetry always kind of like slips in there and it's easy for me to write kind of more abstract than laying events out. So that's both something that I really like about my writing 
as a style, but also I like to be conscious of just in case someone wants, I don't know, a dry story. <laughs> like I said at the top, the amount of metaphors and imagery in here, it reminds me of poetry and I think it really strengthens the piece. Thank you so much again for coming to talk with me and for continuing to share your experiences. I think it's really valuable that you do keep telling your own stories in your own way. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You can find Katie's personal narrative and the rest of the Health Humanities Journal's Fall 2020 issue on our website linked in the show notes, or go to hhj.web.unc.edu. The music you're hearing now and at the top is from Andy G. Cohen. Thanks again to Katie for coming to talk with me, and be sure to watch for our next episode to hear more from the authors of the Health Humanities Journal of UNC Chapel Hill.